Hello and welcome to the Maximum Theater and Performance Podcast, a podcast about theater and performance in New York City beyond Broadway. Enjoy the show. Okay, let's start with introductions. Jose. I'm Jose Solis from Stage Buddy. And we have someone new today. Ben, who are you? Hi, I'm Ben Ferber. You might know me uh, as one half of the duo from Hot Pepper Theater. Yep. You might not know me as the guy who mixed the Folio Group audio tag. Fantastic. You'll hear that at the end of today's show. (laughs) And I'm a director, playwright person. Wonderful. Welcome. We're happy to have you. And I am Lindsay. I make the podcast. Today we are recording in a studio with a leaky roof. A leaky ceiling, but hopefully that will not influence the recording. So we are here to talk about some shows we have seen recently, and we're starting with Performateria, which is a collection of theater companies curated by Theater Development Fund, Theater Development Fund, which you probably know best for running the TKTS booths. They also run a website where people who work for nonprofits or in the government or for other affiliated organizations can buy online discount tickets. If you are eligible for a TDF membership and you do not have one, you should go obtain one immediately. It is the best way to obtain discount tickets if you qualify for them. So they came up with this idea for Performateria, which is pretty much exactly what it sounds like. It is a cafeteria of performance options. And I thought this was really fun to attend, but even more so, I love this idea conceptually. This is how young, emerging indie theater companies in New York need to cooperate much, much more frequently. They are scattered across the city creating great work in isolation. And there are a few organizations trying to bring them together, but they don't really do a great job at the concept of the rising tide raises all boats. And I thought this was just a perfect example of something that should be happening on a regular basis and far more frequently. In fact, when I was there, I was thinking, really, this is how the fringe NYC should just completely reimagine itself. It should just bring together these these groups of theater makers who, some of whom are well-established and well-respected and some of whom are just getting started and bring them together and do a festival of full-length shows where people can come and be exposed to these young, exciting, awesome theater makers in our city. So that being said, the way this worked is it was at Baruch College and there were these performances were only 10 minute snippets some of them fully 10 minutes beginning to end a full idea we saw a very short play by um that was the fire this time festival yes the fire this time festival that was a two person you know kind of intended to be a 10 minute play and not more than that then there were other things where we just saw snippets of larger shows the thing we saw from Mayi was from Pierre Gint, which is a show that had recently closed that they had produced. Some things were great. Some things weren't great. All of them were 10 minutes, so the pain didn't last long if we didn't enjoy it. I just love this idea so much. I applaud TDF for putting this on. I cannot say enough good things about this concept, and I hope it is something we see much, much more of. I will turn it over to you guys to share your own views on it. Jose? 
I remember liking a lot what they did with the space because mm. I had never been to uh, Baruch College. Uh, and one of the performances I saw by, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing, Rady, Ratty, Rady and Bloom had the audience sit on the stage. And what they did with like the actual audience seats was incredible because they had like paintings that they would move and it would look like water flowing and I mean I admired the stamina of the performers and all the cardio they were doing for us because <laughs> they were going up and down and they had like paintings and it was kind of it made me think of like watching like a George Melier's movie come to life in front of my eyes which was really cool uh, and then I, I actually like the concept. I don't like haunted houses because I, like, I have a very weak heart. But I like the idea of like having a different possibility around each corner. And, and, and yeah, like some of the things that I saw I did not like. I, some of them, like the 10 minutes felt like 100 hours for me. But it was fun to see also how... The only word I can use is how diverse the people who were sitting next to me were. There were like kids and there were families and there were older people and there were black people, Latino people, Asian people. It was not your usual theater audience, which I thought was fantastic. Could not agree more with that. I have no idea how they did audience development for this, but they totally succeeded in creating a group of people who did not look like a typical theater audience. My inkling about that is that they filled that building i mean it was a huge building um with like a hundred theaters that i did not know existed mm. they filled it with like the super fans of each of the like 20 companies 15 20 companies and that's the people who are going to everything else so like we when Lindsay, when you and i went we knew like a number of the companies we did not know all of them we yep. did not even know all of them that we saw right and so it was a way to see like very established companies like Ma Yi and the New York Neo-Futurists do their thing um, with some companies that a lot of people know, but not everyone, like The Fire This Time um, or Blessed Unrest. And then there are a bunch of companies that we didn't know. And this was a chance for them to be showcased equally alongside a bunch of other companies and kind of to meld their fans, which I think is a helpful thing. Totally. Did you want to mention anything specific that we saw? Yeah, so we saw... I liked The Fire This Time I liked play. it a lot. It was about uh, two high schoolers, one of them, a boy and a girl. One of them is... The boy is teaching the girl to dance in heels and asked her to prom, and she is not having it because she thinks he's gay. And he says, why can't I wear heels and also take you to prom? Like, why can't we just go to prom and have a great time? And it was, it's a very simple concept for a 10 minute play, but I think it fully achieved it. And it was fun. A huge emotional arc and the performers were so good. The other thing that was difficult was we didn't really get programs for a lot of things. Mm -hmm. So we were left guessing about a lot of the companies or if they gave out programs, they gave out like a, like a flyer for like, this is who the company is. Yeah, so let me just name very quickly all the participating companies. The Assembly, Blessed Unrest, the Fire This Time Festival, Kinesis Project, Lesser America, the New York Neo-Futurist, the Pumpkin Pie Show, Radiant Bloom, Talking Band, Theater Breaking Through Barriers. This list in the press release doesn't include Ma Yi, who we do Oh, I see. There are two different lists for different weekends. Mm. 
on the second weekend, add to that the Dramatic Question Theater, Flux Theater Ensemble, Ma Yi, New York Deaf Theater Project. I think that's everything. Sorry that list didn't become, wasn't delivered more smoothly. (laughs) (laughs) I think the next time they do this, it'll be much more honed. Like they'll get us through the space better. The companies are going to know what kind of pieces to put in it because they I, they were just kind of throwing whatever they had yep. this time. And I think this can become something that is a way to get theater companies to intermingle and get their fans to go to each other's shows. Exactly. I just think it's so great. Okay, let's talk about Casablanca Box, Ben. So Casablanca Box uh, is at Here Arts Center. It's by Sarah and Reed Farrington. Sarah Farrington uh, wrote it and Reed Farrington directed it and did the set and video design. Basically, it is a non-linear telling of the shooting of Casablanca using both video from the film itself and live recreation of the performances. So they do this in a number of ways. They will have actors recreate shots while a scrim is in front of them and the actual shot is projected onto it. Sometimes we'll hear the actors' voices, sometimes we'll hear the movie itself, the audio, sometimes the screen will be juxtaposed next to them, and it all varies based on what they're trying to do. They'll show us drafts of scenes that didn't make it into the final version. They show us a number of drafts of the ending, which I believe are real, real drafts of the ending. I'm not actually sure. I don't know a ton about the history of Casablanca other than my general impression is that it was a disaster to make, and it all sounds true to me. And that is what this play is about because it's about they don't have the script. And so the writers are writing the script and dealing with the censorship board. It's about the actors feeling directionless, feeling they don't know where their character is going or how to do a scene. And so we see a number of different scenes where actors are trying to get their work right. Um, One of them storms off and has an insane like Smeagol-like monologue with himself in his dressing room to psych him up for the scene. And then he nails it. And uh, Ingrid Bergman, there's a whole thing about her affair and her marriage and her dealing with that while being on set and not being with her kids and her husband and wanting to be somewhere else. And so it is both an interesting historical look at Casablanca and it is a beautiful celebration of what goes into filmmaking while showing the results showing the successful results and showing sometimes the awkward results. And did you like it? Oh yeah. (laughs) I loved it. The thing is it used video in a smart way because a lot of shows will just, well, we saw another one that used video that we'll talk about later. A lot of shows just put video on stage and make you watch it and then talk about it. This integrated that into the storytelling. So when you're seeing a draft of a scene, you'll see a two-second snippet of whatever the scene they're shooting is, but you're seeing the work behind it. You're seeing the director, played by Kevin Arfrey, who's really wonderful, um, like screaming at them to get it right and screaming at them to do it over and over and over again. You're seeing them (laughs) process, and it's both stressful and exciting because you want them to get it right, and you want to see what happened to Casablanca. Because particularly as someone who, like, is not super, like, I don't, encyclopedically no Casablanca it was 
it made me encyclopedically know Casablanca. It was like a Seth Rudetsky like breakdown of Casablanca. And yet so pleasurable. The word that comes to mind when I think about this show is genius. I just can't even really appreciate as a member of the audience the full technical achievement that is this show. I just know that it's brilliant. And in some ways that effort shows, but it doesn't detract from the pleasure of watching this show. It's really one of the few times I can think of where exactly what you said, Ben, there is a merger of technology and storytelling that reinforces and supports one another and is greater than the sum of its parts as a result in terms of what it is delivering and explaining to the audience. This show is so great. And there are a couple of things about it in addition to the technical elements that are really unique. One is just the size of the cast. There mm-hmm. are so many people on stage and it's so great to see something at a small theater that is just full of life and constant activity and so robust. It's really a pleasure to sit through. It's 90 minutes, no intermission. And I would just be very surprised if anybody came out of the theater feeling like they had been bored for a single moment. The other thing I want to compliment is the actor Roger Casey who plays Bogart. He is so masterful. I know when I saw the workshop of this a couple a year ago or a couple years ago, whenever that was, he, I, I remembered him just really standing out and being fantastic, and he continued to deliver in this role. Well, he gives you the like awkward, like small man behind Humphrey Bogart. And so the Humphrey Bogart we see on screen is like a created character. And then we see this actor giving us everything, every little insecurity, every little, like at one point he says, you should have cast Ronald Reagan in this because mm-hmm. I don't do this kind of movie. I don't do romance scenes. And then there's a whole direction of him to do a romance scene. Yeah. I love that part. Okay. Jose, you haven't seen this, but you did interview the playwright. Do you want to add anything? I don't know. I just want to go. I just want to leave this room and go see the show right now. <laughs> <laughs> you do have plans to see it. Yeah, I know I'm that. I'm seeing it very soon, but I'm really excited. And I just, I mean, Casablanca is one of my favorite movies of all time. Like Casablanca has never not been a part of my life. And I'm so happy that, you know, that the show actually works. Cause I, I went to a rehearsal and just, I saw so many people and I saw everything that you're talking about. And for me, as a huge film buff, there are so many Easter eggs in because they're blending things not only from the movie and the making of the movie, but they're blending things from like a scene I saw where they had uh, the actress who was playing Ingrid Bergman with the guy who was playing Roberto Rossellini, and they are talking about it's completely anachronistic and stuff, but they're talking about so many things about their entire filmographies. And they're blending things from, I don't know, I was just like like a little kid when I was watching them rehearse for that. So I cannot wait to go see the show. And uh, I just want to, the only thing I would add, I guess, is that uh, maybe to make it sound not less uh, pleasurable, but more uh, important than ever, is that Casablanca was a movie that was completely made by refugees. Everyone who made Casablanca came from war-torn Europe. So I think there's something in the air right now, and maybe we're getting this show for, for, for a reason. It is relevant, as is the next show we have to talk about, 
The profane. The profane. How do you like that segue? It's perfect. <laughs> the profane is a play by uh, Zaid Zaid Dorn at Playwrights Horizons, and it starts off as a very traditional, I would want to say, like family drama, where uh, a young man called Rafe and his girlfriend Amina. No, Rafe is the dad. Oh, Rafe is a dad. Yes. Wait, yeah. are, are we no, right Sam, about Sam, 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 yes. Sam. Yeah. Sorry. I'm, I'm, that's okay. I'm, I don't remember names. Uh, Sam and Amina, but Amina was the girl, right? Yeah. Anyway, uh, Sam and Amina go to Amina's parents' home for, I'm assuming it's Thanksgiving, although I never see them eat turkey. Whatever. whatever. They go to her house and at some point have to announce that even though they're in their early 20s, they are going to be married very soon. Even though they, uh, do we ever know what country they came from? No. Yeah, no. I don't think it's mentioned. They one time mentioned Turkish coffee. Okay. That's the only name of any country in the entire play. Right. Uh, anyway, they are from the Middle East, and Rafe is a writer who made me think of a very Salman Rushdie kind of type who fled his home country in fear of persecution and started uh, anew in America and has become an intellectual who writes books that are very critical of the society where he grew up. So when his daughter, Amina, announces that she's going to marry Sam, the biggest problem is that Sam is a more traditional kind of Middle Eastern uh, guy. His family insists, for instance, that the mom and the daughters still wear the veil and all of that. So Rafe feels like the biggest failure to see his daughter want to return to what she shouldn't even know about because he never taught her about that. So there's like a slight twist. And then the second half of the play takes place in Sam's house where we meet the other family. And I guess the only thing that, uh, the only way I can, I, I don't know, like describe what happens next is that nothing is really what it seems. And it's a play that I felt slapped me at least constantly in terms of my own prejudice and in terms of what I thought I would see. I was very pleased that the play was not condescending at all. It was teaching stuff about um, different cultures, but it wasn't exoticizing them at any point. And it made, it walked like the extra mile to make, sh to make sure that every single person in the play was a human that I could think, that I could see running into when I left the theater. And what, what I thought, and again, it was it's very timely and it's relevant and all of that, because it does tell us that we, now I'm making it sound like a Sesame Street thing, which is not, <laughs> but it's, it's telling us basically, hey, you know, liberals, conservatives, we all have our bullshit to deal with and we all have our prejudice. And even uh, with apologies to Mr. Salman, who I'm using as an example so much, even someone like Salman, has his own prejudice against things like religion, against uh, the society where he grew up. I'm not saying that, whatever. But yeah, it's, it's saying, hey, the world is not black and white. There's so much gray. So it was, I came out of it shook. Ben? 
I'm really glad you liked this play. I I couldn't. I hated it. I really hated every moment of being at this play. It was the big thing that the big problem I had was that it was so non-specific. Like they didn't say what country they were from. They didn't really talk about the. They didn't talk about any specifics of their culture. They talked about general things that American audiences would think about Muslim families rather than like this is our this is the tradition in our family this is the tradition among people from this country this is like this is like they they barely even quote the quran which becomes a big thing later because uh rave rips a page out of it and it becomes oh, spoiler alert i'm sorry <laughs> but that's you know what the that's that's the moment that's supposed to be the most exciting thing in this play and it does not land because we have no grounding. Something that Jack said last week when he was previewing this was, and I quote, the thing that I think is really exciting about this play is that it's a play about a particular faith in which there are no outsiders. In other words, there is no Christian white person who is sort of being a surrogate for a subscriber audience to criticize or offer an outside opinion about a faith. I'm gonna add uh, just a qualifier to that, except for the playwright. So I didn't know anything about Zaid Doran. I had seen like a reading of his once of something else. So I went and looked him up. He is the son of two people from the Weather Underground, which was a white radical group uh, during the Vietnam War and after. They're an anti-war group, but they're, they're white. He's white. I'm pretty sure he's not a Muslim. Correct me if I'm wrong, anyone listening. But it felt very clearly like an outsider perspective using actors who had an insider perspective. But I just, I felt that it was so ignorant of anything and willfully so that it became a big paintbrush rather than anything saying anything of meaning. That's very interesting. I I think we're Goldilocks and the three bears here and kind of in the middle. I think that the decision not to make these families from a specific country was a very intentional decision because as soon as you mention a lot of specifics, your audience comes to the family with their own baggage. And I think that this playwright was trying to play it down the middle in terms of presenting these different dynamics that are opposing within a slice of the Muslim world and, and, and presenting it to a certain audience of the type of people that tend to go to the theater. And so he was coming to it from this perspective of trying to quote unquote educate a particular type of audience. And I don't know that any of us necessarily fit within the category of that audience. And maybe I personally at times felt like he was speaking down to me a bit. Mm-hmm. That being said, I did, I did come away. I actually didn't, the play. I know that I'm aligned with Jose here. I feel like I am not aligned with most of the people I know who went and saw this play, hmm. who I would consider my peers. I, I really liked each character. I thought that 
each person was in many ways archetypical that, you know, here's this person on this post in the political, socioeconomic, religious spectrum of society. And each person was like clearly staked out in their position there. And while in many ways that's lacking in nuance and it, it nevertheless sets up the conflict nicely. It's all a little pat. Mm-hmm. And even the conversation, like the words, the way the play ran felt very much like a sitcom. So it was kind of playing, what I'm trying to say is it was like playing to the lowest common denominator in terms of, let's see, two clashing factions, two families who are both Muslim. It, that's their history from immigration, immigrants from the Middle East somewhere. Let's see them clash. It was like, what's the basic way in which to communicate this that is actually totally lacking an offense? In I actually, this morning, I went and watched the video that Playwrights Horizons has posted on their website of this show, and it's basically just a bunch of laugh lines. So it mm. felt like watching a three camera sitcom with a live audience and i was like yes i thought this felt like a sitcom when i was watching it and this video is like reinforcing that that is what you were trying to produce for us well and you're super right because like a sitcom as you say the characters are so clear like they are very clear given circumstances for everyone and I actually didn't notice that when watching the play. So, hey, that was expertly done. The problem I have is that when they interact with each other, there's no... For example, so the the parents of the more Americanized family, mm-hmm. they're really afraid that Sam is going to be incredibly conservative and his family is going to be incredibly conservative. And they keep talking about this over and over and over again. But there's never... Sam gives us no reason to believe that. He actually gives us a lot of reasons to believe with what he says and does that he's actually really liberal and honestly kind of a lot like them, just from a lower socioeconomic class. And yet they do not react to that or change because of that or see it. And it's, I understand that it's supposed to be about them being rigid, but they do not react to what is happening in the play. They react to the construction of the idea. And so I think that that is what the play's going for. I don't think it's realistic. I do not think it's believable in the moment. Hmm. What Sam wasn't a lower class. He was just his, he actually, they actually point out that he, he, Sam's family has more money than they make. But that's also something that I appreciate it because Middle Eastern uh, culture in many ways is similar to Latin American culture where people who go to college, for instance, or people who come from a lot of money, even if they lose every single penny they have, they maintain this, you know, like it's different, like strata of like society. So they point out, in fact, that Sam's family, because they're in the restaurant business, they make a lot of money. While Rafe is struggling because he's not writing anymore and his books aren't selling. So he, they're actually poorer. So yeah. Uh, I just but, mean in terms of origin, though, because I think the what we get with Sam's family is that they like they built this oh, empire yeah, from nothing, whereas yeah. Rafe came from a wealthier, and obviously is he values high his family values high education right. more than they value like business and wealth and enterprise, and Sam's family is more of a bootstraps yeah. situation. Yeah, but it's what that's what I thought was 
also very interesting that even though Rafe is like this big liberal who wants to leave his country behind, he's still holding on to that fake idea of class and how he is better than Sam's family. And I like that you mentioned sitcom because it made me think, I don't know where the hell like Carrie Bradshaw came from and or where the goal, I don't watch the Golden Girls, but I don't know. Uh, or where all the white, fat, I don't know where any of like the people from Friends are from. And I do appreciate that the playwright is, I mean, the only word I get, again, that I can think of is normalizing the fact that, you know, like we will meet people of all different cultures and we don't need to know exactly what country they came from because we don't need to write versions of who they are in our minds. Like it's okay that we don't know and we shouldn't always know. I suspect this play is going to be quite polarizing. So if you saw it and have opinions, come find us on Twitter because I'd love to talk more about it. Can I say something else about this Please play before? Do. I just want to say that I'm in love with everything that uh, the scenic designer Takeshi Kata did. Cause, oh, talk is so great. Because, oh, Jesus, like the second the lights, you know, went on, I knew everything I needed to know about who Rafe was because he had that Fellini poster. He had books on Cocteau. I knew everything about him. And that was like mind blowing. So, yes. As with all productions at Playwrights Horizons, there is significant effort and expense put into the scene rework, and there is indeed a massive scene change, like all Playwrights Horizons shows, which I'm just going to be honest, caused a massive eye roll for me. But there was the moon cart. <laughs> <laughs> it did take like 20 minutes to change this ad. This ad. I mean, I, why? It's so unnecessary. I just, I really just, I, I, I don't know. I, Beautiful. I, I've grown to despise their scenery <laughs> entirely. <laughs> it's like so overwrought. Okay, on to the next show, which is American Mill number two. This is from the Pioneers Go East Collective. It was presented at the ART New York Theaters on West 53rd and the Hudson River. <laughs> and this is a play about a union organizer from the 1920s. Her name was Ella Mae Higgins. She worked in North Carolina trying to organize the textile mills there. She was also a folk singer. This is a musical. I believe the songs in this production are new by Kamala Sankaram, but is based on existing ballads and protest songs about this union organizer. It's actually a true story. Now, I'm just going to say from the beginning, I thought this was really touching. I, as a person who has worked in union organizing and cares a lot about the American labor movement, I thought it was just so wonderful to see a story from American labor history on stage. I thought the performers were excellent. And I thought the music was beautiful. I really... This show really touched me. I thought it was so beautiful. Um, now, that being said, it was told structurally in the strangest way. It had a narrator, and then there were characters who would play... Um, oh, excuse me. There were performers who would play characters in character, and then there was a table in the center where sometimes they would sit and deliver really just a storytelling 
monologue or or spread amongst multiple people in their kind of modern vernacular as though they were just being themselves or playing a contemporary character. These pieces just really did not fit together for me. I thought that from a you know, that kind of dramaturgical, a word I cannot say, perspective, it did not work. Um, we mentioned earlier that we foreshadowed that there was some video work in this show, which I'll defer to you, Ben, to talk about that. That also, I have no idea why that was there, what role it was supposed to play. I, I would see this group of performers do this show in really any context. All that stuff did not make me dislike the show at all. I would love to see this group as a band. I would love to see them tell, do a musical storytelling version of this on stage at Joe's Pub. I, I just there was so much of value here that I really, really loved it. As I say, it was not perfect, but as an experience, I just I was so grateful for it. What do you think, Ben? Well, I want to join you in your joy and my joy about the music and the storytelling because I liked the story. I liked learning about these protesters and these these union representatives because it's like they're some of the earliest union representatives as well. And I just don't know anything about that. And I think that um, Pioneers Go East Collective who made this, clearly they're trying to carve out their own theatrical style and I think that they are, because they devised a lot of this piece. Mm-hmm. I mean, they credit the writer as um, the director, um, Gianmarco Laforte, but they know that the whole acting company also devised dialogue and script and storytelling around it, which I think is helpful, but sometimes we see little parts of the style, like someone will say, like, I am this actor playing this character, which is helpful sometimes and sometimes extraneous and takes you out of it. And I think it's this like, and it's halfway between neo-futurism and like tectonic, where it is trying to create these poetic, beautiful, grounded, real scenes with real life people and circumstances from actors who are not the real thing. I think also they use the music incredibly well and all the musical numbers were, not only were the harmonies tight and beautiful and really fun to listen to, but they, they like came up to the audience. They were in the audience, they were standing right next to us. And it was just, it it felt communal. I felt really happy to be with these actors. They started the play out in the lobby. Mm -hmm. They walk out and they burst out into the lobby, introduce themselves. And then they sing um, Come Fly Away, which was funny because I thought, oh no, are the people downstairs going to hear it? And then I saw Samara the next night, the Soho Rap Show downstairs. And I was waiting in the lobby and I was like, oh, it's that song again. How great. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then they take you in the theater by hand and you have a fun time video. So they played a lot of archival video of this time. And, uh, there were things where like police were chasing union organizers. There were protests and there were big like group shots. There is so little of the archival video and so much of it is looped. It's like, it's GIFs basically that we dwell on it for so long that it becomes boring rather than interesting where Casablanca Box exceeded in using a two-second clip one time, and then we move on, this was dwelling on it in a way that they could have just kept going. And sometimes it was because they needed us to focus on something so they could do a set change. Um, Sometimes it was they thought, I think they thought it would have more impact than it did, but I think in all the story had impact of what was happening with basically these textile companies trying to bust unions and succeeding. Do you want to talk about the live projection at all or just move on? 
I don't even remember what you're talking about. Well, there was a, there were several scenes where there are two characters seated at a table, and there's a video camera projecting one of them onto the wall. You can see how much impression that made on me because I forgot about it until you explained it. Uh, yes, okay, uh, well. it was. I don't know. I've seen that in plays before. I don't think it does anything. Like, it's why don't they just turn the actor so we can see their face? Because particularly in a small small theater like that. We're looking at their face. We can see every detail, and we're with them. And I think that in a huge theater, that would be really helpful, because then people in the back could see every little detail of what's happening in these complicated silent moments. And they were using them for silent moments. But in a small theater, we didn't need it. Actually, you know, now that I just explained that, it reminded me of The Maids at Center with Kate Blanchett. Did you guys see that? Yes, I Where loved it. Where there was a, you know, that is a massive theater, and there was a camera behind a mirror. So when Kate Blanchett would sit with her back to the audience and stare into the mirror, a massive projection of her face was shown to the entire audience. I think they were trying to achieve something very similar because it was a very tight close-up in a silent moment of an emotional scene. Mm-hmm. Um, but for whatever reason, I didn't think it contributed anything to this show in this context. But again, really A for effort and uh, A for emotional impact. I, I, I love the show. I would love to have a recording of these songs. I thought mm-hmm. it was, I thought they were so beautiful. Uh, just a comment on the maids. The one time I think that that worked, the video worked, was there's a scene where Kate Blanchett's character is cleaning a toilet, uh-huh. and there's a camera in the toilet, and it's off stage, yeah. and you're seeing this like close up, like gritty, disgusting thing that she's doing, and that was really impactful. It was used for something that only film could do. Do you want to add anything, Jose? I know you didn't see that show, but we are talking about Kate Blanchett. So all I'm gonna add is <laughs> I miss the musical. I know, I'm sorry for that. I didn't know it wasn't, anyway, now I'm like heartbroken. I told you it was a musical about protest, which is my heroine. Oh, that's what it meant. I thought you were just like throwing like, you know, like Lindsayisms out into the world. I was, like, <laughs> I was like, I know you love union musicals. I didn't know it was a specific one. Anyway. Because it's just like, I thought that was just a cry for help. <laughs> no, I, I, th- I thought like, anyway. Okay, moving on. The Terrifying, which we are sorry, is a show that has closed recently, but I wanted to talk about it because I thought it was pretty interesting. Before you talk about this show, can I ask something? Yes, you may. I, I'm just really curious. What's the scariest show you've, you've seen? Hmm. I've been really scared at haunted houses, okay. like where actors are doing stuff to you. Okay, what yeah. kind of stuff? Like, have you ever have you ever gone through like a like a, a live haunted house? Oh, but that's not like where they like grab the you. And it's a version of it. Yeah, because one of the things that I've always craved. I remember a few years ago, I think there was some sort of like a uh, play version of The Exorcist, and I really wanted to see it. I don't. I don't even. think... It must have been like in London or something. But I've always craved because I don't get scared easily, and I've always craved being terrified and like shitting my pants <laughs> in the theater. And the only, the more I think about it, the only time that I think I've been genuinely kind of scared, um, you know, in front of an actress doing stuff was when I saw The Humans. But other than that, I, I just wanted to throw that out there. Like, any terrifying shows? There was that show about vampires at St. Anne's that they brought over from Scotland. Does oh, anybody let the, remember let the right what one that in? was called? Yes, Let yeah. the Right One In. Um, I thought that show was pretty scary. 
And I want to... I was scared when there was a gun pointed at someone during Casablanca Box. <laughs> well, guns are terrifying. That's yeah. true. Yeah, but they, they, they did it well, where you're like, oh, something could happen. <laughs> Theater companies that don't make it easy to find a list of your goddamn productions on your websites, you're making it impossible for me to shout you out on the fucking <laughs> podcast. You'll never be known. Oh, well. Anyway, you'll have to go to Performateria. <laughs> there so was a scary show I saw. I can't tell you what it was because I can't remember. And I looked it up on their website and it can't and find any there. information there. Okay. So a mystery remains. All right, Ben, the terrifying. So the terrifying was at Abrams Arts Center in their big space, but the audience was on stage and the stage and the audience area were the stage. So it was uh, written and directed by Julia Jarko, who you might know from her show at Jack the other year. Uh, what was the title of that? There were red pandas in it. It was weird and fun. Um, <laughs> what it is, is it is basically like a, like old style, like old country town thriller where there's a monster terrifying this town that is uh, basically killing people one by one. There are the people in this sort of turn of the century Victorian-ish town who are talking about how dangerous it is at night and how dangerous it is to walk around um, and getting picked off one by one. What's happening while this is happening? And it turns out that the, the town jailer is like working with this monster to pick people off um, and like might be like possessed. What happens as this happens is that we are treated to seeing out in the huge audience. This is a big playhouse. Um, the characters who have died <laughs> in modern clothing, like wearing like 3D glasses and stuff and like eating popcorn, watching the play from behind um, as it's a horror movie. And they're texting each other and they're talking about it. And it is a, it is a, it is a strange experience that is not necessarily comprehensible at first and then you realize what's happening i at no point did i realize until you just described it at this moment that that is what was happening <laughs> and there are scenes where of course as people are being kicked off one picked off one by one they're confronted with this monster which we do not physically see but we hear and feel through this incredible sound design uh which was done by uh, ben williams it was a live sound design um, and so this monster was literally a character because we were hearing these like guttural, crazy sounds, scratches, and they had, I think they had sound exciters under the risers cause we were shaking. And so people are getting horribly killed. Um, and eventually of course, you know, someone fights the monster and may or may not succeed. Jose. I did not like this show one bit. Oh really? <laughs> yes. Cause Why? Because I went into the show with that thing about I really want to be terrified. And my problem with that show was that, uh, first of all, it was so confusing. Because even though they were in, like, Victorian garb, they have they had telephones. And they talked about cars. And about, you know, the, the, the woman who was going to marry the guy who dies at first. She's like, I'm going to go to your house and use the phone. I'm like, but you're wearing, like, turn of this anyway. Once I realized that what they were doing was that they were putting on a movie and people in the audience who had died were watching this movie, it became so clear to me that 
Okay, in my the way that I see horror movies is that there's two kinds of horror movies. There's like the really terrifying horror movies, like things like The Others, and things like I don't know, like The Shining. But then there's like campy horror movies and mm-hmm. things like slasher films and killer cl- clowns from outer space. But once I figured out that the terrifying was a satire or sorts of this, I think that a requisite for you to do a satire or a parody or any sort of like spoofy approach to an art form, you really have to love this art form. And I did not, what I felt with the playwright and the way that they handled the terrifying was that they thought that they were better than what they were doing. So they were making fun of Victorian garb and stereotypes and horror movie cliches. But you could see that they always thought that we are fancy theater people putting on a spoof and showing why we doing something live is better than a campy horror movie. And I found that really obnoxious. Like it got it got in my nerves. Uh, they were going out of their way to point out how stupid horror movies are. And they are. But then why bother poking fun at things that people, other people love? How did you feel about the actual monster scenes? Uh... I don't I don't think I felt anything about them. They were loud. Like my ears were like buzzing, but I don't know. I was so pissed at how they were handling horror as a genre that I I, I just wanted the monster to eat everyone so I could go home. Wow, I don't think I've ever heard you critique something so harshly. That's really? very interesting. Yeah. So my perspective on this is that I walked out having no idea what had happened. I could not follow the story at all. I could not understand who the characters were, what they were doing, why they were doing what they were doing. It was just all a complete, it was like watching an abstract expressionist painting. But the design elements of this show were so interesting and they were introduced additional elements frequently enough that I found that I had a really excellent experience at it. The sign design by Ben Williams, who I principally know as a stage actor with the Wooster Group and Elevator Repair Service, I thought were so great. I really, really enjoyed the spectacle of that. I thought their use of the space was so imaginative. I've seen other shows in the same space from both sides of the theater, including having sit, uh, seen other shows where I sat on the stage, but the audience hall was not part of the performance. And I thought that was so interesting. And they kind of reveal slowly more and more design elements in that space. I thought that was great. And it was just, it, it was just, I, it, it was just, I was just going to combine the word dynamic and engaging into dynaming or something. (laughs) It was just dynamic and engaging enough to hold my attention throughout and to provide enough of a thrill and enough excitement that I really enjoyed it, even though I didn't know what was happening. I think that's a, I think that's Julia Jarko. I think all of her plays have like weird anachronism and weird, like continuity strangeness. Mm -hmm. 
which I think is intentionally supposed to confuse you, but I think often does just straight up, it's just straight up confusing and it makes you forget what's happening. There's a great article in the New York Times about Ben's sound design that includes some audio files of Ben describing what he did to create the sound design, plus some snippets of the sound, including a pull from a Trump speech that he's modified into being like the scariest sound in the whole play. Oh my God. Yeah. I, I highly recommend the article. It's in our timeline on Twitter if you've not seen it. Okie doke. Also what? shout out to Christine Hurinali, who's great in that. She's great in everything. Awesome. But she was like a little like Victorian boy who lost his knife. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay. What do we have coming up that we are excited about? I am going to Austin next week for the Fusebox Festival. Wow. I love that festival. It's so great. And I cannot wait to see it. If there are any listeners who are there, please do get in touch. They should take you for queso. There will be tremendous amounts of... <laughs> <laughs> Gallons of queso. Food consumed. What do you have, Ben? I'm excited about, um, it's coming up in about a month at the Bushwick Star. It's The Art of Love Part 5, Roque Cupid. That's, uh, The Art of Love is the, like, series done by the Royal Osiris Karaoke Ensemble, mm -hmm. um, which is, like, two weird dudes who basically put on gold makeup and lip-sync YouTube videos. The last show that I saw of theirs was at the Under the Radar Festival, not this past year, but the previous year. Um, which was about Elliot Roger, who shot up a uh, university and was part of the sort of fringe men's rights activist movement. And they found a lot of like fringe, like MRA related and like non MRA related videos, but adjacent videos that they sort of strung together in a narrative about that kind of media and that kind of isolation, which I thought was great. So anything that they do with like their YouTube karaoke, I'm a go to. Yeah, we had a long conversation on the podcast about that show in the archives, if you're interested. Cool. I'm seeing Gently Down the Stream. And I was so happy with the preview when Liz brought up Vanity Fair, because I'm seeing Vanity Fair as well. And yay Ooh. for Corsair dramas. Right? <laughs> uh, I'm also seeing uh, one of the shows at the Tilt Kids Festival thing that's still going on called The Seven Digits. And because I am nothing if not a firm believer in second chances, I'm revisiting Oslo on Broadway this time. Wow, really? Yes. And That's on Easter and on Easter Sunday. Yeah, and I yeah, I know. I'm like I heard they cut an intermission though. So it's three hours and just one intermission. That's what I heard. Oh god. Maybe I'll be reborn after I sit through it again then. <laughs> all right. Thank you all for being here. Bye. Love you. Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode of the Maximum Theater and Performance Podcast. If you have questions, comments, or opinions that differ from our own, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us all on Twitter. Maximu is at Maximu, M-A-X-A-M-O-O. -O. Jose is at Jose Solis Mayen, J-O-S-E-S-O-L-I-S-M-A-Y-E-N. Ben is at Ben Ferber, B-E-N-F-E-R-B-E-R. And I'm at Lindsay Barons, L-I-N-D-S-A-Y-B-A-R-E-N-Z. If you enjoyed today's show, please leave a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And we have merch. You can buy coffee mugs, tote bags, and stickers with your favorite Maximu-isms on them. You can get to the store via Maximu.com. 
All proceeds go to helping the podcast improve our sound quality. We'll be back in May with a preview. See you then. Theatrical Media.